This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Hi, I'm Hanif Baharuddin and you're listening to Night School, the show that explores ideas and themes in the social sciences and the humanities. I'm joined by Simon Soon and a returning guest, Ong Kajin. Um, so you're now an independent researcher, right? Yes, I am. Oh, hi, Kajin. <laughs> Welcome back to the show. Welcome Thank back to the show. Thank you very much for having me again. So today we're going to be talking about the concept of the return in yes. light of a lot of things that happened mm-hmm. recently, right? And I have right? just returned from Lahore. <laughs> yes, yeah. and you just found out all <laughs> about all this. just found out about everything. Um, so, mm. why why do you think return is a good topic for us to sort of like dwell into what's happening currently? Right. So, I, I'm very fascinated by this idea of the return because it is central to how we construct historical narratives. Mm-hmm. And when I say historical narrative, I don't mean like, oh, XYZ professor of history says this is how things go, blah, mm-hmm. blah, blah. No, I mean like, you know, the ordinary Malaysian, we all construct narratives and how we make sense of events. And even now, we are still trying to make sense of everything, right? And mm-hmm. nothing makes sense. So the return is basically this idea where, okay, we, the sort of like many Malaysians sort of like constructed this story in their head. Oh, Malaysia was doomed and it was going to the doors. Everything was downhill. I told all my children, don't come back from Australia, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> you know, go find a job somewhere else. Yeah. And then the miracle of May 2018 happened. And, you know, suddenly there was hope in the country again. Right. You know, long live the Republic of Bangsa. <laughs> um, and, you know, there's this narrative that, that May 2018 was a rupture in time. Right. But then, now this turn of events is like, oh, we've returned. And at first, it was the idea of the return of the strong man, right? Mm-hmm. The sort of like, this Jekyll and Hyde character, Dr. Mahathir. Right. Oh, actually... The, you know, Mr. Hyde is back. Right, he was right, not right. Dr. Jekyll all along. But then, you know, the return of the strong man is, eh? No, actually, it's not Mahathir, right? Mm-hmm. Mahathir is not the, the real, quote-unquote, bad guy in this situation. It's only Tan Sri Muhyiddin. Right. And then you're like, eh? So people so what now are struggling to, to make sense of it. And now the return is perhaps a return to that sort of like state, that trajectory of Malaysia of, oh yes, it's going down to the dogs. Uh, uh, there's no hope for you, son. I think you should emigrate anyway. Right, right, right. right. So what we return to is essentially shifting all the time, right? It's never returning to something that is all uh, fixed. Is that what you're suggesting? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think to, to put it in a broader context, I think the idea of the return is not so much you know, like, yes, we're very caught up in this political situation mm-hmm. now, but I think the idea of return can be taken to a personal level as right. well, right? So, for example, because I study a lot of trauma studies mm-hmm. and a lot of genocide, human rights atrocities and all that, and there's this recurring theme where, say, for example, um, you're a sexual assault survivor, mm-hmm. right? And you believe you've moved on and you've cut that person out from your life and then that person reappears. Mm. And they're in a position of power or prestige again. Mm-hmm. How do you deal with that return? Right. You know, you constructed this narrative of, I have now moved on. Mm-hmm. This is a new life. Mm-hmm. And then that person comes back. And you, you, your kind of whole way you've constructed yourself, you kind of dealt with this, you know, 
shatters right. and you're like how do I deal with this yeah. I think you so know, what like, happens in that instance uh, I mean on the one hand uh, one possible scenario is that we break down entirely right. Right. Uh, but the other way you're suggesting that we are a lot more resilient in the way we sort of like make meaning out of like things that are unfolding that, that, that we don't actually have a good grasp of right yeah I mean you know, I, I think breaking down right. is a perfectly valid way of coping. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, you know, I think it's okay to mourn, mm-hmm. right? Because this, the way things are unfolding is not just a, a kind of like trauma on a nationwide level, but it's also trauma on a very personal level. So I think it's okay to break down, this, mm-hmm. you know? And then people have worked so hard, you know? And, and you know, I, I think while acknowledging that Yes, mourning is really important. I, I think it's it's also like, what do you do with that rage, right? What do you do with that anger, that sadness, that despair? Mm-hmm. And I always look to to beyond Malaysia where, for example, you know, like in, in the Philippines, yeah. right? So, you know, people power, you know, people sort of like really paid blood, sweat and tears, literally, right. to bring down Marcos mm-hmm. and then... You know, the the whole system, you know, that's why in the Philippines, there's a president and a vice president and they run on different tickets because the whole system was constructed so that there would never be again, never again. That was the motto. Never again another Marcos. Never again another dictator. Never again another strong man. And then Duterte comes into power. Bong Bong Marcos, you know, Marcos's Mm -hmm. legacy almost becomes vice president. Right, right. And people are shocked. Right, right. but I think at the same time, you see, you know, if you look at it, there's a huge flourishing of the arts, of academia, mm-hmm. of resistances, of even like in the political realm of senators really standing up and sort of saying, yeah, okay, what? You know, like there are committees, there are re- there's resiliences in the system. Right, it's right. not a straight up return, right? Mm-hmm. We It's not back to square one. Like a lot of things have already changed mm-hmm. that make it such that there are avenues of resistance. Mm, right? okay. Does the concept of the return look at things only in a negative perspective? Does it depend on the perspective of, of the individual, right? For example, if that person sees what we think of something as negative as positive, does this person then see the return as something that is, you know, the return to a good time, for example. Oh, no, totally, right? Because, I mean, there are always competing narratives, right? Mm-hmm. So, I think, you know, to certain people who were previously in power, this may be a fantastic <laughs> return, mm-hmm. right? Or, or even to people who don't like the situation, they may have seen the previous part as, oh, this is all a return to the good old days, mm. right? I think this, this idea of nostalgia, this idea of like, we were always trying to claw back the past and dig it up and sort of like revive it and resurrect it is very, very powerful. Right, right, mm. right, right. But this pattern of thinking, you think is structural in nature? It applies across many different sort of like contexts and uh, situations, not just Malaysia. No, no, not, not at all. I mean, I brought up, you know, um, the Philippines. Philippines. Uh, but I think, for example, in, in, in Peru, right? Mm-hmm. So Peru, um, very so like infamously, the one-time president, Alberto Fujimori, you know, he ran on a ticket of, oh, clean, anti-corruption, right. we're going to clean out the streets, anti-crime. But what he did in office was that he had killing squads. He, right. in the name of rooting out insurgencies, many, many activists and sort of like socially conscious and involved people were killed indiscriminately. And he's now out of power. He's been put in jail. Mm-hmm. But 
in the previous election, his daughter, Keiko Mufuhimori, could have nearly gone back into power and right. she certainly would have dropped charges against him and and I mean and freed him from prison, right? Mm-hmm. I mean it was done that he was in prison. Right. Um and and I think again is this idea of like what what do you do? Right. Like right. if you're the survivor, you're a family of the survivors, and you thought, wow, finally there's justice, what do you do? Right, right. Um right. and I also think of, you know, like across the world this sort of like rise of very violent fascist movements mm-hmm. and what do the survivors think mm. you know who have trauma who have memories from, from long ago uh-huh. and thought oh the world has moved on from that mm. so before we look for solutions maybe we can try to historicize this a bit uh, mm. would you sort of like consider this as a condition of sort of modernity mm. I mean given that in the 18th century someone like Marx uh, sorry in the 19th century someone like Marx would also sort of like write about uh, the return on some level right in his 18th of Bormier mm-hmm. um, essay but are you sort of also sort of like looking at a longer sort of like you mm. know time scale when you sort of like think of the return? Is it a condition of sort of like modernity that we're dealing with that the return then becomes such a, a crucial feature in the way we think about the past? Well, I would hesitate to call it a condition of modernity, mm-hmm. right? Because like, yes, certainly Marx has this idea, but Marx also has this idea of, of revolutions where you, you break these cycles, right? Right, right, right. You know, and, and I think certainly in sort of like Eastern historiography and how we understand narrative in the Eastern kind of tradition, mm-hmm. this idea of cyclical history is very, very strong. Mm-hmm. That we are trapped in cycles of repeating ourselves and, mm. you know, reincarnation and this endless cycle of suffering, right? But I, I, I think maybe uh, in many ways, colonial sort of like scholarship does sort of talk about the fatalism of Malay culture. Whether that's true or not, mm. there is um, perhaps a kind of like determinism. Yeah, I mean, I think the best narrative, right, that people are trying to make sense now and is, is a trope, right? Hang tua, hang jebat. Mm. And they are always constantly trying to put, oh, 1998, hang tua, hang jebat. Right, then, right, right. You know, Anwar Mati is like, you know, the perennial hang tua, hang jebat, <laughs> you know. And then now, I think now the, the, the kind of, and then of course, the other narrative is Sikitol, right? Who's the betrayer in the mist? Mm. Who's the traitor in the mist? And we keep repeating these stories. You know, at the last PKL Congress, mm-hmm. Anwar was making a speech about Sikitol and that was what made Azmin supporters get up and leave. Mm, he right, didn't even right. mention names, right? Mm-hmm. But these stories are so powerful to us. Mm-hmm. We immediately know their currency, their sort of like power yeah. in the language, in, in our daily psyche, that when we hear them, we have immediate reaction. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think when we try to make sense, but I think that's why this particular past week has been so traumatic. Right. You know, because it's so confusing. Right. And like, who's Hang Tua? Who's Hang Jabat? Right. You know, who's uh, Sikitol? Eh, Mahathir is Sikitol. Eh, Mahathir is Hang Tua. Eh, Mahathir is Hang Jabat. Who, who is the hero? Who is the villain? Mahathir knows everything. Mahathir mm. doesn't know anything. Mahathir is the mastermind. He's condemning all this. <laughs> you know, Mahathir, oh, no, no, actually. You know, like, this, we cannot make sense, mm. right? And when we cannot make, I think the question is, what do we do with narratives that don't make sense? Mm. What do we do we do and in the larger context, this is like the moment of grief for anyone, right? Yeah. When some for example, someone you love dies inexplicably of an incurable disease. Yeah. Or just 
passes away at the age of 18 of, of like a crazy freak accident. Mm-hmm. You know, the first question you ask is, how, why? Does this make any sense? Mm. We just need to make it make sense. Yeah. Mm. There is this famous quote uh, about history. Uh, I think it's maybe by Churchill, but I might be wrong. Mm. Um, so it's a famous quote that says, history is written by the victors, right? Mm. And, and what I like about at least the way we are discussing things right now is that uh, it's a bit more personalized mm-hmm. and I think it focuses more on how do you make sense how, how do you make sense of things right, personally right, right? Right, right how do you construct the narrative and mm. it has that it has a more personal vibe right it's not necessarily canonical with Correct. the official narrative yep. per right, se right right right, right. Mm. Yep. And it's also like sort of like lived history, right? It's embodied mm. in a way that your own sort of personal story is twinned to this larger social story of the social body. And, and that's why there is this sort of like investment on so many levels, this strong emotional sort of like investment, mm. right? Uh, that will lead to maybe even trauma. Yes, right? yes. I mean, I think one, one idea in a very, very personal sort of like level is that, you know, a lot of uh, scholars of trauma and the way historical trauma transmits itself mm-hmm. is that a lot of them believe that the body is its own archive. Mm. The body remembers. So, you know, you look at African-American kind of histories and Native American histories mm-hmm. and when they hear the stories again, when they resurface, you know, they say that there's something deep within them that mm. feels, yeah. right, that kind of like resonates with this. Yeah. And, and I and into a certain extent, I think that's extremely interesting and extremely powerful. This mm-hmm. idea that the body remembers, and mm. when you ask people to retell their stories, I mean they have their own personal stories of mm. twenty eighteen or nineteen ninety eight or whatever. Mm-hmm. They'll tell you what did they feel, what did they smell, what mm. do they remember? You know, mm-hmm. getting choked by tear gas or mm-hmm. or you know the 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 blaring or or like. These little details like, oh, you know, I couldn't really hear Anwar Ibrahim on the night because the microphone had this tinny sound, right? right? right, right. These are the details people remember. Right, right. And these are very sensorial, very body kind of base feelings. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All right. uh, So let's take a break first. You're listening to Night School with me, Hanif Baharudin and Simon Soon. And this week, we're joined by Ong Kajin, an independent researcher, and we've been discussing the idea of the return. Stay tuned, BFM 89.9. BFM 89.9, you're tuned in to Night School with me, Hanif Baharuddin. I'm joined by Simon Soon and our guest, Onkar Jin, an independent researcher. And we've been talking about the concept of the return. And I think uh, we stop at the idea of how I think when we're thinking about this whole personal uh, history, personal narrative, uh, it can also be a sensorial experience, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So from the felt, how do you sort of then deal with uh, things that don't always sort of like come together in your universe? Mm. I mean... I think the, the most immediate answer to sort of like what when things don't make sense, right, in the sort of narrative con- we've constructed is mm-hmm. the most immediate reaction is we'll try to create alternative narratives mm-hmm. that do make sense, right? For example, most Malaysians, I think, and even myself, don't think any of this makes sense because in our head, in my head, I've constructed a certain profile of this is what Mahathir and Anwar are like. This mm. is how they will behave. This is their internal motivation. Right, right, you know, I, right. I almost, you know, we almost pretend we know them right, and their right. interiority and we can guess their intentions when in truth, maybe you have no idea. Mm-hmm. And in truth, maybe, you know, people do things for no particular reason sometimes or they make mistakes, right? right, right, right. But we always must assign intentionality to these people, these right. actors, as if they're all-knowing and they're fully in control of their own emotions and feelings. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and we don't think this makes sense because it's very personality based. It's big actors of history right. battling out in the stage against each other for the grand historical stage, mm. you know. But we also believe that the epic has an ending that we are familiar with. Yes, yes, right. yes. The hero triumphs. And, you know, <laughs> no idea who's a hero yeah, now. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, and of course, you know, this is from my perspective, mm-hmm. but to someone else's perspective, I mean, the hero is perhaps triumphing now. Right. Right. You right, know, right. those that, yeah. But I think, for example, you know, I think today or yesterday, I, I read some articles that have recently kind of put forth an alternative narrative. Mm. I think Wong Ching Huat had an article in Malaysia Kini today where he talks about, oh, he proposes a different narrative. And actually, it's fascinating. You, you, you have to read it. Okay. He talks about systems. Right. Right. So, basically, what he is trying to do is shift the conversation away from personalities mm-hmm. to saying, these are the tools within our system. This is the Westminster first-past-the-post-parliamentary system. These are the structural st- you know, factors and components yeah. within party politics and since 1998 or even before that that have contributed to this moment here. Mm. And that's another way of thinking about it, right? Right, right, right. Systems, right. Yeah. right? So that's an alternative narrative, mm-hmm. right? Mm. So, and I mean, of course, he's a political scientist, which yeah. is why he, he thinks in that way. But there are also many, many other ways of taking these narratives, mm-hmm. right? In fact, I would say that irreverence is, or humor, or kind of like, embracing the absurdism is another way of making sense of this all, right? So you see a lot of responses, you know, like, I think you're very familiar with this, Simon, like the whole absurdist movement comes from, you know, the sort of like debris of World War II. Mm -hmm. And, you know, these these people are like writing Waiting for Godot and all these absurdist plays where nothing really makes sense because, and, you know, Dadaism and all these art that is not really art and they're challenging what is art. And you know, funny, funny. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> kind of and then pictures. statements are right. Yeah. Because sort of like... in World War Two, they said nothing makes sense. It's so violent. How can people do this? How right. can humanity be capable of such right. violence and such? You know that they had to to deal with it with irreverence, with right, nonsense, right. so to speak. Yeah. Right. Of course, it's not nonsense. It's very well thought out and all that. But to present that, mm. and I think you know, for example, Malaysians on a very personal level, we deal with it with kind of silly humor, mm-hmm. right? And, <laughs> yeah. and that's a perfectly valid, and actually, I think it's very, very clever way to deal with it. Right, you right. Know? I mean, alongside humor, there is also a very interesting strain of history making that yes. is centered on the prophetic sort of like uh, yeah. tradition, right? Uh, we play with always the word Rahman. Yes, and now yes. We have sort of like Rahman, Mahathir. you know, which uh, prime minister is going to come. Right. And, and then, then, you know, there's that theory where it's, uh, now that Rahman is finished, right? N for Najib. Right, right. Then you were like, oh, it's M for Mahathir next, right? Yeah. So M, Mahathir back again. Then the next letter is A, therefore it's Anwar. Mm-hmm. And then when, you know, the whole Anwar Azmin thing was happening, people were like, oh no, it's Azmin. A is for Azmin. Right. Oh, it still makes sense, you know? Right, right, ah, right. Masih boleh follow prophecy <laughs> kan? Yeah. And then now it's. Muhyiddin and they're like oh M for Muhyiddin actually not Mahathir no no repeats no repeats in this acronym thing (laughs) (laughs) but what I like about it is there's also a a dimension of playfulness in it it is not sort of like serious or if it is taken seriously at all 
it also allows for moments in which you engage with others into sort of trying to build right, up this, right. this narrative. Right. Like, well, mm. but I think it's, I mean, yes, it's not serious, but mm. I mean, there are people who take it perfectly seriously. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. But that brings us into sort of considering the realm of conspiracy, right? right? Because conspiracy theories often have a lot of truths and mm. there's a lot of narrative making and history making, right? Mm. Even though half of it is made up. Yeah. But there's a certain internal logic, logic. to conspiracies, mm-hmm. right? Or even, for example, the supernatural, right? right? Um, you know, I, I had a friend who told me I knew this was going to happen. And I was like, how? He was like, my fortune teller uh-huh. told me that this year, the country... It, this year, 2020, is a year of transitions for you, but also the country will transition into, you know, a very different place than where it was. And I was like, oh, oh. interesting. But it's a valid way of trying to make sense of things. It's mm-hmm. another way of constructing narratives, mm-hmm. right? Fortune telling, mm-hmm. the supernatural, right. the, cons- the realm of conspiracy, right. the realm of humor. Right. These are all alternative narratives that people sort of like fall back to when the official narratives break down, right? right, And you said that history is made by the victors. But what if the victors are changing every few hours? <laughs> then <laughs> they contradict each other, right? right, right. I mean, we've already changed the Sajara textbooks this year. I mean, I can imagine that what if it changes again? And then school kids would be like, wait a minute. Yeah. <laughs> on here? But maybe what it reflects is not so much the past and it's actually a, a future-facing sort of like mm. uh, conundrum that we are all trying to sort of unpack, right? Mm. So as much as we're trying to sort of like Try to make sense of this thing that has happened. Actually, what we're concerned with is what's going to sort of like happen. Yeah, I mean, I, I think something in in historical narratives that is actually you know always there is directionality, mm. directions, right? You construct A, B, C mm-hmm. because it's facing a certain direction. Mm-hmm. You want that direction to make sense. Mm-hmm. You know, A and then circle back round about. You turn, do that, right, right. oh, Don't make sense anymore. Mm. I can't tell where the future is going. Right, right, right. right. I mean. I think it's very interesting that the moment we like we sort of like historicize something, mm-hmm. the the first thing Malaysians say is, "Oh, they try to make sense of the whole thing." And the first thing they say is, "Malaysia is doomed. Malaysia is good. Right, Malaysia is right, doomed. Right. It's future facing, right?" Mm. Is making sense of things also one way or a different way of saying coping? Like, and uh, is this our way of coping with things? Mm-hmm. Is our coping mechanism humor, for example, like mm. you know, right, self-deprecating right, humor, right. alternative narratives? Um, I don't know whether there's a difference between coping and making sense of things, but but um, what what do you guys think? Like, yeah. well, what do you think it's coping, or what, what, mm. what are they coping? Like, for example, right. because the concept of the return is so so daunting, so traumatic. Mm. Right, right, right. I guess maybe to a certain extent, um, their way of coping is is to I guess inject some form of humor, right, rather mm. than thinking about it in a more rational way, mm. I guess. Yeah. And, and hence the reason why all these alternative narratives perhaps have like a different sort of like tone to it. It's not necessarily rational in its in a in a pure sense, but right. rather a bit more conspiratorial in nature, mm. right, right. humorous in nature. Right, right. And things right. like that, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean to to me at least, mm-hmm. you know, there's not so much a division between the two. Mm. Um, you know, Umberto Eco, he said that we tell stories because we have to survive, mm-hmm. right? And I think in that one sentence, it says it a lot about up. the human sort of need that things have to make sense to us, mm. you know? Because if not, then what does anything mean? 
Why mm-hmm. do you do the things you do? Why yeah. are we sitting here? You know, maybe, you know, right now, what keeps you going in the morning is, you know, and I will, alternatively, are, I have friends who now cannot get up in the morning mm. because they're so depressed and they're like, what's the point of anything? Nothing makes sense. Nothing ever matters, right? right? But alternatively, the people who are more energized now, it's because they're telling themselves this story of, no, I've always been in this role. Now is the role time of resistance, right? Mm. But it's that, that story that they tell that allows them to survive, that allows them to get up in the morning. Right. And I think following on that, Umberto also sort of writes that, you know, anyone who writes for himself mm. is an atheist, right? Yeah. Uh, I, I think uh, yes. to unpack that is yes. really, you know, the idea of sort of telling stories is really a social one. Correct. You cannot sort of just tell stories to yourself to comfort yourself. Yep. You're telling stories to also comfort others. You're trying, telling stories to also sort of like make meaning yeah. together with other people. Yeah, I mean, uh, it, it's exactly right because and I think something very interesting about Umberto Eco is that people often forget that he's actually like a fantastic linguist, right? Mm-hmm. He studies semiotics, he studies the art of interpretation and of text and words in their meaning, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, to sort of simplify a lot of his thinking is that the way we structure words is yeah. how we create meaning out of things. And meaning has to be socially made. Mm. It has to make sense between us, yeah. right? I mean... You're exactly right. Yeah. Atheist, right? Because if you don't believe in anything anymore and you refuse to tell me no stories, mm-hmm. then, you, then you're a nihilist. Right. Then or you, if you simply sort of like invent stories for the sake of inventing stories, then you're destroying the world around you, the meaning around well, you. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's why, mm. you know, people are so threatened by the idea of fake news mm-hmm. or the idea of, of Donald Trump. Right. Right. Or right, the idea right. of, mm. uh, or even now, like this whole situation is because people are more fundamental, I think, than the idea of the nation going to the doldrums or whatever, is this idea of who do we trust? Yeah. How can we trust? What is the truth? And that's par- it can be incredibly paralyzing when, mm-hmm. you, when you have no idea what is and what's not. So wh- what feelings do you wake up to every day? <laughs> oh boy. I mean, honestly, I, I wake up and you know what? My first instinct is to te- check Malaysia Kini. Okay. Right? There was one point where, you know, I was, I felt so lethargic that I would go to sleep in the afternoon, wake up every hour, check Malaysia Kini. Oh, new government? No, no new government? Go back to sleep. And then it, it was kind of um, surreal, right? You know, I'm just like half asleep, super tired. And every hour when I wake up, there's a new prime minister that's <laughs> right. going to come in. Right, <laughs> right, right, right. right. <laughs> um, and I, I guess, to me, the way I've kind of created this narrative that to me makes sense, right? It's not going to make sense to everybody, mm-hmm. but it's personal to me. Right. Is that we need to escape this titanic battle between personalities. Mm. Right, that to me, I I wake up because I am trying to write a more sensitive history of these things. Mm-hmm. Like I, I mean, I was I was telling some of my friends that, you know, that if you read 
and I think it's, it's fantastic. If you take all the op-eds and all the opinions that have come up mm-hmm. in various papers this past two weeks, mm-hmm. you will see Martyr is our saviour, Martyr is the mastermind, and you know, right. all these conflicting narratives. And to me, it's like, but why can't we write something that's more more sensitive, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, Martyr can be many things. Right. He can be multifaceted. Right. He is a father who mm-hmm. I think is very clear to people, really loves his wife and children. Mm-hmm. Um, he certainly has a huge ego. Right. But he cares about legacy. Mm-hmm. Um, but he can be very incredibly petty. Mm-hmm. Right. But all these things can exist in one person. Right. But when we construct these narratives, we cannot accept that he can be so many things at the same time mm. or conflicted mm-hmm. or confused. Yeah. Um, is that our prevailing approach to archetypes? How we understand archetypes in this right. country? I mean, do we not see archetypes as many faces, right? Right. thousand faces, having a thousand so, faces? So I actually, example. so so one, there's this great show um, called Kim's Convenience. I don't know. I mean, right, it, right, it's yeah, very yeah, out I, of left field. It's uh, you know, it's a Netflix show. It's yeah, about I a Korean that. family in Canada running a convenience store. It's a wonderful, wonderful kind of like Asian West, like you know, Asian American and Asian Canadian kind of experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the analysis of why this show is so good is because it is a show that believes in archetypes but not stereotypes, mm. right? And there's a difference, right? Of course, there are archetypes because, I mean, I can say, you know, I can, I mean, I, sometimes I play this terrible game where I sit down at a banana leaf store right, right. and then I'm like, I hear someone talking next to me, I'm like, mm, bangsa, bangsa. Right, and right, the other right, person yeah, will be like, mm, no, no, PJ Old Town, this person, PJ Old Town. Right, no, right, no, right, you know, right. like, we have archetypes. Yeah, yeah, but that doesn't mean we have to believe in stereotypes. Right. Because I think archetypes acknowledge the places in which you come from, the mm-hmm. environments which you come from, mm-hmm. and the sort of like statistical prob- probabilities. Right. But stereotypes trap you. Mm. Stereotypes are narratives that are predetermined mm-hmm. and don't allow for flexibility. Right. And I think that that is, I think, one way. I mean, you know, people, like, in the broader sense, you know, Malaysia struggles a lot with this question, mm-hmm. right? You know, because so like we, we are constantly profiling people, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. When, you, when you go to any purchase, you make the decision, do I speak to this person in English, Mandarin, Malay, or, or whatever? We are racially profiling everybody yeah. all the time, or, or, or class, or whatever. Mm-hmm. So the exercise I try to force myself to do is always to sort of Try to allow for the persons, for the person to be more than yes the, the stereotype or exactly that yeah he or she is yeah. you know that I've assigned to him. Yeah, or she, but I think him, you can believe in an archetype, right? Right, and, and acknowledge that this is the reality of things. You're you're just more likely to to this and that because you're uh, from this background, right, but right, not right. believe in the stereotype. Mm. And I think that is part of the narrative that one of the big kind of to me the big themes in this sort of like narrative making especially in Malaysian history but even in our personal lives is that we have to try to find a way to acknowledge archetypes but not give in to stereotypes Mm -hmm. does the personal narrative making take into consideration uh, facts or is it very subjective and driven by how you make sense of things. Mm. Do you try to look for actual facts or do you just make up things or believe in whatever you want to believe in? Mm. Right. Isn't it sort of like a selective process? I mean, uh, facts are always there, right? Mm. I mean, uh, information is out there, but mm. 
we are very selective in the way we pick and choose different things in order mm. to sort of pull together this mm. narrative that we want to tell. So, yeah. so it's not that objective. I mean, all, I mean, yeah, I don't think. I it's mean, all never... his, well, all history writing is <laughs> never objective. Uh, never objective. Yeah, never. But, but I mean, what I will say on a sort of like personal sort of like level, and most Malaysians experience this is your social media, mm-hmm. your friend circles, are a way of curating the kind of narratives and facts that you receive. So, mm-hmm. you know, like, just based on the media I read and mm-hmm. based on the social media pages I follow, the memes that I share, yeah. the WhatsApp groups that I'm in. So not even the opinion that you share, but based on the list of friends or the things that you subscribe yeah, to. Yeah, I mean, right? but, okay. but you can you can create narratives, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and this act of curation is also an act of curating the facts and the data that you receive to then construct your narrative. Right, mm. um, I think one of the things that has happened is that I mean we're the kind of primacy of a single source has been fractured, mm-hmm. right? So yeah la, Last time, opposition or government or whatever you are, mainstream. Sorry media. la, you still have to read the Star or News Straits Times. Right, right, right. But now it's it becomes such that we can live in such separate worlds that I think we have. I mean, of course, we need facts, right? Not so much like facts in the sort of objective truth sense, but we just need data. Mm -hmm. We need fodder and fuel to construct and build these narratives. Mm -hmm. But I think it's such that we now have many, many sources Mm. to build our own. It's like Lego sets now, you know? Right, right, right. And let's not forget that from many or so, the story of the nation just doesn't bother them at all mm. right mm. I mean they live in an entirely different sort of like set of temporal rhythm that where the nation doesn't figure that strongly mm. yeah. in their imagination mm. Mm. Yeah. yeah so many people live like that too yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't know that it's appropriate to ask this but do you think that it's a privileged thing yeah that kind of mindset or do you think so I actually I, I don't know I'm, I, I, don't, I think it cuts across class yeah I think, I think it does cut, cut across class you know yeah. I mean, you know, I think we just deal, we kind of like deal with narratives of the nation in different ways, mm. right? You know, for some people, they will tell you this story of, I, uh, you know, I don't care. Um, it doesn't really affect me, mm-hmm. despite the fact that it does. Um, right. And that's their own way of sort of like making a relationship with the nation, right? Mm-hmm. But in some ways, I also think it's often defense mechanism. Right. Right. You don't want to care. You don't want to care. La. In it's, case you get heartbroken. Yeah, yeah. Again and again and again. Yeah, and but again and again. I, I think I think that I mean <laughs> where where you say this, right, is where I always go back to, you know, our the way we relate to the nation, we are in a relationship with the nation. Mm. You know, like and I, I mean this in a personal, like like a friend or like a lover, right? Yeah. We say, Oh, the Malaysians betrayed me. Right. As right. if like, you know, the, so the the person cheated on you, right? right the nation. And I think that's how that. people feel. Right. That's really how people feel. Like, oh, you told me all these wonderful things and now you've broken all your promises and oh. and, and you know this it's very personal. Right. And people will write love letters. Right. right. I mean right, I right, think right, it's right. it's very telling that in Malay you reserve the word chinta mm-hmm. for, for, for Nagara, Nagara and your lover. 
And on that note, I guess we have to say goodbye. Uh, you just heard from Ong Ka Jin, an independent researcher, and he's joined by Simon Soon, and we've been talking about the concept of the return. Share thoughts with us by tweeting us at BFM Radio, or you can send us an email to nightschool at bfm.my. Uh, don't forget to also download the BFM app, which you can get on the Apple App Store and Google Play. Uh, thanks once again, uh, Ong Ka Jin and Thank Simon Soon. Thank you. I'm Hanif Baharudin, and you've been listening to Night School on BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.